Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's July the 14th, 2021. And surprise, surprise, racism, racism directed against young black men is once again in the news. It seems to have dominated the news uh, over the last 18 months, particularly uh, perhaps uh, over the last 18 years or maybe even 18 centuries. It's, it's all too dominant. Um, in the United Kingdom, uh, a young uh, a black uh, footballer who played for England uh, had his mural, Marcus Rashford, in, in Manchester defaced after um, he missed the penalty. Fortunately, the people of Manchester rebelled against the racists and, um, and, 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 and wrote over the racist comments on the mural. Meanwhile, in America, uh, one of the, and, and this is not a, a show about murals, although it's a show about creativity and racism. Uh, in North Toledo, uh, a George Floyd mural was reduced to rubble, fortunately not by uh, racists, but by the weather. Uh, and that gave an opportunity for one of America's leading racists, Donald Trump Jr., to say that the destruction of this mural might be a sign of uh, from God. Uh, it may be true, but I, I, I have no idea how someone like Donald Trump Jr. knows anything about uh, what God is thinking. Uh, meanwhile, lots of other uh, news about Black Lives Matter murals. One was defaced in Elizabeth City. Uh, the police are pushing back, saying that they were harassed by Black Lives Matter uh, murals and uh, all sorts of other horrible examples of, of racism in the news today. Some uh, some uh, idiot smearing feces on Black Lives Matter signs, which were caught on uh, cam. So um, uh, today's show isn't so much about racism, but a racist society, and particularly a racist society perceived uh, from the perception the perspective of young uh, black men. Uh, my guest today on the show is a fiction writer rather than a nonfiction writer. He's an African-American novelist, although he his first three books were less about um, Africa-America than about science fiction. This book is about his experience, I think, or the collective experience of his community in America. It's called Hell of a Book. It's by Jason Mott. He's a brilliant young, I don't know if he's so young, brilliant uh, novelist, uh, best uh, New York Times best-selling writer, and this book has been acclaimed. Uh, 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 Jason, uh, too much from me uh, and not enough uh, from you. Um, welcome, Jason. Um, this defacement of murals, this ongoing spiteful battle between racists around the world, particularly in America and, um, and the black community, particularly young black men. Is this the heart of your book? Is this what Hell of a Book is about? Indirectly, yes. Um, Hell of a Book is very much about this 
this dissonance that black Americans and black people worldwide actually have to deal with and have to kind of contend with on this, this scale. Um, so this, this type of defacement that happened with the murals, like this is all par for the course. It's, and Hell of a Book tries to discuss what it's like both growing up in that as a kid and also being a parent in that and also trying to be a creative voice in that kind of environment. Jason, we've had a lot of uh, shows about uh, from nonfiction writers. Uh, uh, recently, uh, we had uh, Adam uh, Server on the uh, Sower on the show, the New Yorker writer. The cruelty is the point. Books by nonfiction writers, and, and, and Sower makes the point about the Trump racists that cruelty is indeed the point that they are purposely and unambiguously racists. What does a fiction writer, particularly a uh, a, a magical, uh, perhaps, I, again, I don't want to pigeonhole you, but but a lot of critics have, have, have described you as, uh, uh, as a non-realist fiction writer. What do you bring to this discussion, which people like Sowa and so many other non-fiction ana- analysts can't because of your form, because of, of what you do as a writer? Yeah, I think fiction and, you know, surrealist fiction or absurdist fiction, whatever you want to call it, I think that allows an entry point into the discussion along different lines. Um, You know, nonfiction very much is a uh, very, very logical kind of analytical approach to a certain topic. And I think there's great, great value in that. But one thing that fiction, I think, offers is fiction offers the spirit and the heart and the emotion that oftentimes you don't get in certain kinds of nonfiction, not all, but certain kinds of nonfiction. So that's what I try to bring to this this discussion is that because these aren't just lives lived in a bottle. These aren't analytical lives that we lead. They are lives full of emotion, full of pain and full of sorrow. And that needs to be felt to be empathized with. And empathy is how you affect change. Jason, do you think you need in some ways to be a surrealist in terms of making sense of the African-American condition of the story? I, I know uh, I've got an interest in, in Holocaust literature, and I've always thought that the the, the most poignant of all Holocaust books was by uh, Borowski, the, the, the Pole, uh, This Way to the Gas Chambers, Ladies and Gentlemen, which is a surrealist treatment. Uh, the the African-American experience is in some ways similar, I think, to what happened to the Jews uh, uh, during the Second World War. Do you think surrealism is in some ways essential? Because it's so unbelievable, really, what what's happened to your people over the last three or four hundred years. Yeah, I think so. I know for me in particular, and for a lot of people that I, you know, a lot of friends and family that I know, I think you, if you ever stop to really ponder the history and the reality of your existence, it can be very overwhelming. So surrealism, absurdity in particular, I think of myself as a bit of an absurdist. Absurdity in particular is a great way to cope with that. You know, I read a lot of Albert Camus and like just that idea that it is so absurd. You have, that is your coping mechanism many times. Surrealism as well. So I think it is essential. You mentioned Camus, of course, Camus' book, The Plague, is very much in vogue in the, in the COVID uh, year, especially last year, 2020. Uh, what do, and, I, and again, I don't always think actually of Camus as a, a, an absurdist, uh, but in your mind, what does somebody like Camus teach you and us about the human condition and ways of writing about it. And perhaps you might say something about the plague. Usually I don't like to talk about the plague on this show because we we talk about it too much during COVID. But I'm curious which of Camus' novels um, influenced you most, uh, particularly in terms of hell of a book. No, I think it, so for me, I think that what he provides is 
a certain sense of perspective. And I think that that's the thing that surrealism and absurdism all kind of feed into and kind of kind of exude. It's this idea of the the emotional lens through which we exist oftentimes can become overwhelming. And so what writers like Camus oftentimes do is they teach you to pull back from that and to see, to, to not be quite as invested in things, but also to kind of still be able to navigate them. You know, I think about Camus' writings on Sisyphus, the myth of Sisyphus, and you know, the, the Sisyphus has to find pleasure, it has to find you know, meaningfulness in the pushing of the rock up and down the hill every single day. And like, that's how he kind of exists. That's how he finds his meaning in in the, in all of that kind of that kind of existence. I think there's a lot of parallel in that to African American existence and Black existence on a global scale. When you look at history, it is this sense of pushing this rock again and again. That rock being your desire to be seen as a human being, you're constantly pushing it up, and it's constantly being pushed down, and you constantly push it up again. There's a lot of parallel in that. Yeah, I I think we all must feel a little bit like Sisyphus when we see these remarks by this idiot Donald Trump Jr. saying that the destruction of the Floyd mural might be a sign of God. What are we to make, um, Jason? Uh, and what do you say in hell of a book about uh, idiot racists like Trump Jr.? Personally, I, you, you have to just laugh at that. Any anyone of, anyone of that ilk who says that, you know, a mural being destroyed is the work of God, like, I feel like you have to just, if that's not absurdity, I don't know what is. And hell of a I mean, it's as almost to... as if he's he, he's walking out of a novel by an absurdist like you. Exactly. I mean, he, he's exactly. almost too absurd to be created. If he didn't exist, people would say, and if you invented a guy like that, who looks like that and who has the manner and the ignorance, and you put him in one of your books, people would say, well, that's absurd. That's even too far. Yes, <laughs> exactly. And I think that's, that is the irony of it. And that is the humor of it. Like that, that headline alone, like I literally just could not help but laugh at that. And I think that hell of a book tries to, to show that level of absurdity and that level of how the, the real world oftentimes becomes a place where we have trouble delineating between what is between those levels of like absurdist behavior and actual genuine thought and logic and thought and logic seems to be on the, on the decline. It seems like oftentimes nowadays, particularly among certain leaders, the, you know, the last, the Trump era taught us that many of the rules by which we expect the world to function don't function that way. And I think that was a bit of a system shock for everyone. Yeah, I remember uh, after 9-11, someone wrote um, a review of one of the DeLillo books saying that uh, um, perhaps a, a, a surrealist or a, an absurdist like DeLillo, uh, his his craft is 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 undermined in some ways when reality catches up with it. Where So when 9-11 happened, which could have come out of a DeLillo novel, in a way, it, it, it challenges him. Um, uh, Jason, talk a little bit about the book. Tell me what the story is, um, how you came to it, and um, uh, what, why you wrote the book in, in, in a narrative sense. Sure. So the story of Hell of a Book is about an author who goes on a book tour. Like the backstory is he's written a really big novel and he's traveling around selling his book, as you often do on book tour. But as he does, he encounters this character known simply as the kid who's like a 10 year old boy, 10 year old black boy. And as he's traveling around, this kid keeps appearing again and again and again. And he doesn't know why this kid is there. The author kind of struggles with reality and fiction. And you hear reports of police shooting a 10-year-old boy, and you start to wonder, is this kid that this author is somehow seeing, 
Is this the same kid that he's seeing in this, you know, the kid has been shot. So there's that main narrative, which tries to discuss this moment of impetus that the author is feeling where he has this desire to talk about race and to talk about all the things that he's seen, the life that he's lived as a black man in America, butting up against his desire to just be a creative voice. You know, it is about, it's a story that tries to talk about that burden that minorities are put upon where if you're a, if you are an author who happens to be black you are always a black author you are never allowed the freedom that white authors are allowed where you can just tell your story and the story stands on its own two legs because i believe there are a lot of beautiful voices who get crushed by that kind of pigeonholing of dynamics so hell of a book tries to discuss that and also tries to discuss the penalty pressed upon children in america in particular of children of color who aren't allowed to have these voices, who aren't allowed oftentimes to grow up at all, children who are shot and killed way before their time and how parents try to navigate that. Uh, as I said, you have three books. Uh, this is your mm -hmm. fourth novel. The first, The Returned, was a, a New York Times bestseller. The Wonder of All Things, uh, The Crossing, all, all acclaimed critically, all big successes. To what extent is this book, and, I, and I've read some stuff uh, and there are some suggestions in the book itself, in the novel, that there's an element of autobiography here, um, uh, Jason, that uh, your agent wasn't particularly keen on you writing a book about the black experience in America. To what extent is this new book a uh, hell of a book, semi-autobiographical? There's a there's a lot of, of autobiographical components in this novel. The story of Soot, who's this boy growing up in the South, is very, very parallel to my own story. You know, without giving too much away about what happens in the narrative, there's a police shooting that occurs in that particular story arc that is pulled from my own youth, where this man in my small town was shot and killed by police. And so I use that as a template for the narrative of the story. Um, and yeah, the, the story also discusses, Hell of a Book also discusses the industry of publishing and how race is something oftentimes want Black authors to avoid unless it somehow sells units, somehow moves books. And so the agent within the novel is very much about trying to steer their 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 client through this this landscape, and it's about the the author himself trying to figure out his place in that. Like, does he want to become this voice for the African American people? Does he want to, or does he want to just be someone who tells stories? Can you be a voice? I mean, your experience is in some ways similar, but I am assuming in many ways very different from many other African Americans. Is it appropriate for? Uh, critics or even readers to think of somebody like Jason Mott as a voice of the African-American people? I don't know if it's appropriate or not. I think that, I think it is almost unavoidable to a certain extent. Um, I mean, part of being a, part of being a creative of any voice of any ilk is that you have something to say, period. And you have to find the way to say that thing. And so for a lot of my career, you know, in my previous novels, there have been very, subtextual discussions of race and subtextual discussions of how we treat others who don't look the way that we do, but they've never been quite to the forefront of this particular story. So I think as a person, I've evolved to this point where I'm tired of talking around the topic and I'm ready to speak directly to the topic. Um, will I become some voice of the African-American people? Who knows, like that wasn't necessarily my goal. My goal was simply to become the voice that I am and hopefully other African-Americans, other you know white Americans, people will find part of themselves in that and that will further this big discussion that we are perpetually having. Uh, Jason, you dedicate to the, the book to for all the other mad kids. And the inscription at the beginning uh, is, when you see yourself in the mirror, do you like what you see? That's the question. And the answer is, 
I try not to look. I think a lot of people like me are like that. Um, and then you come back when you say people like me, what do you mean? When you look at yourself in the mirror, do you see a black man? I mean, does that something that dominates your sense of self? It is. It, it is something that is inescapable um, because of the fact that I know where I live. Like I live in southeastern United States. So like this. Yeah, this you gave it a pretty bad write up. One point <laughs> is you, you describe uh, the American South where you not formally one of the characters in the book describes that the narrator. How do you describe the South? The longest running crime scene, America's longest running crime yeah. scene, I think is how I described it. Me a memorable quote, which I don't think is <laughs> inaccurate. And, and by crime, you mean crime of racism. Yes, racism, slavery, you know, Jim Crow, all of that. It is. It just changes forms and mutates. And I think the South is the culmination of that. And I don't want to disparage the South too much. Like, I've lived here my entire life. I love living in the South, but just with anything that you love, you recognize the flaws and the the the, the weaknesses, the places that could be better. And so the South very much is that. And so when I look in the mirror, I definitely, I cannot help but see what other people see. The problem is that too many other people, America in particular, doesn't want to give me time to show you the other parts that I am. And that becomes the great travesty that is pressed upon, you know, that's what racism does. Racism narrows down a person's identity to just a color and removes their humanity. It removes their complexity, it removes our ability to empathize and to believe that they are like what like we are. And that is the thing that we are always struggling with. Uh, Jason, recently um, we had uh, Alex Vitali on the show. He has a book out, The End of Policing, very influential book. Um, in terms of your analysis of American racism, uh, how central is the role of the police in terms of discrimination against young black men? Oh, the role of police is vital in terms of discrimination against young black men. It is something that is indoctrinated and has been for generations. I mean, if you follow the history of American policing back to the slave catchers, it is something that police forces have been taught from the ground up, from, from a foundational level, they have been taught to view so much of African-American existence as a crime, whether it be your desire to flee the plantation and to achieve your own freedom. I mean, the idea that the pursuit of freedom is a crime for people of a certain color and that that became the norm. And then those people went on to become police forces and no one ever questioned that. No one ever stops to analyze that. And then when slavery transformed into Jim Crow, Jim Crow era laws in the South, it still became a case where the police were in charge of, you know, making sure that people of a certain color couldn't vote, couldn't sit down in certain locations. Like historically in America, police are the embodiment of racist laws and racist kind of doctrines. And that is inescapable. And so it is, it is just a matter of fact that police at this stage, not all police, obviously, but the policing industry as a whole is very much predicated upon biased laws and biased behavior against black people. Uh, Jason, uh, Carol Anderson, I'm sure you know her work, is, is an old friend of mine. She's been on the show several times. She, uh, she teaches at Emory University. She's one of America's leading uh, critics of American racism, of legal, political, economic. Uh, she argues that America needs to confront its past like the Germans need to confront the past, and they've never done it. Uh, recently, I had the, um, the writer Hilary Beard on the show. Hillary has co-written a book with Tim Madigan, a, a book for children, actually, The Burning, about the, the Tulsa race massacre of 1921. 
which most people didn't really know about uh, a few years for the uh, up until the last few years when it was featured in a Hollywood movie. Um, do you agree with Carol Anderson that that the great challenge in America is really finally facing up to the profound criminality of its past when it comes yes. to race? I believe I agree with that wholeheartedly. I think that is the core of so many of America's ills is that the America as a whole committed a, committed a crime. Let's just let's let's just call it what it is. Like America committed a crime. A crime against rather, humanity. I mean, it yes, wasn't like a crime, a crime of, of stealing a loaf of bread, right? Yes, exactly. And rather than have an honest discussion about that and try to try to actually face that and embrace that and make that part of the identity that you try to move forward from, the conversation has always been about just don't talk about it. We'll just move forward and pretend it didn't happen. And even and, and even the pretend it didn't happen is completely false. Like even that is a very hollow kind of thing for people to say. Um, but like right now you see so much attack on critical race theory where like people are now saying we can't teach racism in schools or we can't teach that racism even existed. That is the embodiment of not moving on, of not facing the thing and not actually having a discussion about the thing. They are very literally trying to bury the, the America's history of racism. Um, that is how you get to these situations. So I wholeheartedly agree with that. Jason, we've had lots of shows with some fiction writers actually about racism in America, not directed to African-Americans. We had the the acclaimed short story writer a couple of months ago, Asako Sarizawa. She has a new collection, Inheritors, about the racism directed against um, Asian-Americans and Asians generally. Uh, we had the uh, the writer Toby Pearl, Terror to the Wicked, a book about uh, the criminality against Native Americans at the foundation of the country. So uh, how do you think about solidarity, if you like, between Black Americans and Native Americans and Asian Americans, perhaps even some Jewish Americans, people who have experienced mm -hmm. discrimination. Do you think America, Black Americans need to stand separately because of the enormity of the crime? Or can we put all these different peoples in the same bucket when it comes to the experience? I think there, I think that there, I would say that it's not a zero sum equation. I think there is room for all of these communities to have their voices heard because they are, we all have experienced very unique and very, very unique, but also very similar components of the American backlash. Like the problem is the American narrative is the, the narrative of the white male conquering the world. Like that is the brochure of America. If you are a white male, come here and take the world by the storm, take the world by storm and, you know, have all the success. And that narrative has come at the expense of all other minorities, you know, Asian Americans, Native Americans, Hispanic Americans, um, across the board, African Americans, of course, as well. So there is a solidarity in that, like there is a unity in that sense that it is it is a shared kind of oppression that minorities have been have dealt with for generations, and we all understand that. But does each of that is it does it all manifest in slightly different ways, and does it all impact us in slightly different ways? Yes. That's why all of those voices need to be both distinct in their own, distinct enough to tell their own story and tell it in their own way from their own community. And yet at the same time, those communities and my community are all part of a larger community of people who have a similar story and a similar voice in that context. So the thing I think the thing to remember is like, it's not a zero sum equation where it's either you're all together or you're all splintered. It's like, no, we can both, we can be both of those and still exist. Jason, reading the book seemed to me that one of the purposes was to get perhaps a reader like myself, who is who who 
who has never and can never experience what it's like to be black, to be empathetic to, to, to what it's like, particularly for, for a male, young, young male. There's all sorts of ways, other ways of creating empathy. There's a, an Oculus Rift, the Facebook uh, virtual reality company has a new game out called Traveling Wild Black, which tries to get uh, 3D users to imagine what it's like to be black. New York Times recently ran another uh, 3D style a series called Traveling Wild Black. Are you in the business of virtual reality, of a, a fictional literary kind in hell of a book? And do you think that the book itself is a better vehicle for creating empathy than a virtual reality 3D game on the phone? Um. I, I'll, for me, I am biased towards the novel format just because I've spent my entire life working in that particular form. So my answer is going to always going to be yes. I think the novel is the best place to have that. Don't experience. be shy. This is lit, Hub, Jason. You can say it. You can scream it from the from the trees. No one's gonna no one's gonna shout you down on that one. But I, I also appreciate the I appreciate new formats and new media and new ways of storytelling. I'm, I'm a big fan of storytelling in all formats. So yeah, I think the novel is the best, but yeah, I mean, that is what I try to do. That's what I wanted to do with Hell of a Book. I think that empathy is the means of affecting change. I, that's one thing I've said so many times and I will always say. And so for me, controlling the reader's experience and allowing the reader to enter my lens and the lens of people like me and experience America through that for a little while I think that is how you actually impact them. That's how you get them to stop and think about things. You shake them up through that manner. And then once you've kind of shaken them up and jostled their expectations, they're willing to talk and they're willing to listen. They're willing to be a part of a part of change. I think that's the important part. How's the book been received, Jason? You've been on the road now for a while doing lots of interviews. Are you getting a, a sympathetic reception? Is it a little too politically correct? Are people too sympathetic? What what stands out in terms of the response to this book, hell of a book? I think the people are very receptive to it. Like so far, I've gotten a lot of good responses from people who didn't expect to have the the level of race discussion that the book evolves into. Oftentimes people would just be, I've heard people have started reading it and there's like, cause there is a, a lot of comedy in the book. Like there's a huge comedy component in the novel. And so people kind of went into the novel expecting a few laughs and maybe a little bit of a discussion about race. And then by the end of the novel, it's a very layered, very complex, very heavy discussion about race. And so the thing I found is that people are oftentimes caught off guard by that. And that's a good thing. That's, you know, that was my goal of the novel. Um, but they are very much willing to, they very much look at, they're looking at the world a slightly different way when they come away from the novel. They're seeing the discussion being had and they're starting to find their way into that discussion. Um, and that was the goal of it. That was the thing I've been looking for. So that's been the reaction so far and I'm really enjoying that. It's a painful discussion though, isn't it, Jason? No yes. one likes having the discussion. We had recently had Brian Burrow, um, he has a new book out, Telling the Truth About the Alamo, which is another book about uh, the racist past of America, particularly in, in Texas, um, on the, 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 the Texan creation myth. Um, the LA Times notes uh, on Forget the Alamo, his book, he co-authored it. But it's very difficult talking about the country's, uh, our country or your country's complicated, quote unquote, complicated history. And indeed, the governor of Texas um, uh, a few days ago banned a discussion on this particular book because he didn't like what he was hearing. So we're, we're really living through an age of, 
cultural warfare, for better or worse. Mm -hmm. um, do you agree with that? And, and, and what do people who are telling the truth about the injustice of this country's history, what do they need to do? They, of course, need to go on the streets to demonstrate. But writers and creative people, what do you think they need to do to, to tell the truth about this country's bloody unjust history? I think they I think they're doing what they need to do. And that is keep speaking it like keep speaking the truth for as long as you can keep saying it in all the formats that you can, because, uh, I, you know, America, cert, certain demographics of America, they want to maintain the mythology of America. The mythology of America is that it's this beautiful melting pot. You know, all immigrants welcome where life is equal. If you just work hard and you you, you go to go to church and work hard, your success, this idea of this meritocracy in which we all are colorblind. That is the mythology of America. And it's a wonderful mythology, but we need to admit that it is a myth and the reality is quite different. And so there are those who are so embedded in that narrative, that brochure of America, that mythology of America, that they don't wanna see it come falling down. And so they're doing everything they can to avoid that. And so it is the duty almost of voices opposed to that, voices willing to kind of speak facts and speak the truth to keep doing that and keep doing it as loudly as possible and not let those people bury the truth and bury the facts. How avoidable is this structural racism, Jason? I, I had uh, Kehinde Andrews, the Anglo-Caribbean uh, historian of colonialism on the show recently, who sees this as being built into the very structure of the Western Enlightenment, European and American um, project over the last four or 500 years. Do you agree with Andrews? Is there something that goes beyond simply people not liking people of another race? And particularly yeah, in economic it, terms, how, how intimately is it bound up with the history of capitalism? I think it is is tied very deeply to the history of capitalism and to also just the history of Western culture. Like history of Western culture definitely became a you know if you go back to rome and greece like it was a bit more it was not quite as xenophobic as it has become and then you know middle ages you, you get this very xenophobic very isolated um you know catholicism that occurred and like that influenced western culture very heavily going forward and that trickled outward into the, the renaissance movement and the enlightenment period and all of those philosophical and economical kind of structures that were laid down during that period they were all predicated upon this idea that Europe is the pinnacle of the world and white Europeans in particular um, are the ones who are at the top of the heap and everyone else is beneath them. And so that is something that America picked up when it, you know, when it formed and just indoctrinated into its own system and has carried forward. So it is a very deeply rooted tree that is growing here and it's kind of rotting around all of us. Well, the way to confront that and perhaps change it one way is to read Jason Mott's new novel, Hell of a Book. Uh, I haven't got a better joke to say than it is quite a, a hell of a, uh, it is indeed a, a hell of a book, a hell of a read uh, in both a, a good and troubling way. It's a must read, one of the must read uh, fictional books uh, of this summer. Congratulations, uh, Jason, on the book. Really uh, remarkable achievement. Uh, finally, um, in addition to your uh, new book. Um, what else should people be reading? I mentioned some of the books we featured on the show. Are there particular books that you, in your mind, speak most directly and profoundly to the experience of African-Americans in America? Um, 
anything about James Baldwin, I would, I would honestly, I, I point to James Baldwin so much in my writing and also just in my daily life. Um, so there are a lot of collected works of James Baldwin's essays. So I always point people towards anything. James Baldwin's fiction is really wonderful, but this is a case where I think James Baldwin's nonfiction is the most powerful and influential that you can kind of get your hands on. Um, so by that context, I would just say anything by James Baldwin that you can come across, it, it, is, it is deserving of your time. Well, anything by James Baldwin, and I think anything by Jason Mott, particularly his new book, hell of a book, a uh, wonderful new novel. Uh, Jason, thank you so much uh, for coming onto the show. Keep well, and we'll have you back on again to talk about America uh, and how to, make, uh, how to make it a better, fairer country. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It's great being here.